Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is Episode 4, Succession Crisis. I want to take you to Peking, December 1908, and a new emperor is being enthroned. His name, his personal name, is Puyi, Aishinjiro Puyi, and he's only two years old. He would be the last emperor of the Qing dynasty, although he was unaware of that at that time. He could not have known or had any responsibility for anything that had come previous to him. Yet there he was, placed by fate and circumstance, to rule China at that moment. I now want to take you back to October of 1643, to Peking, and a new Qing emperor is in China. And his name is Fulin, Aishin Jielo Fulin, and he is a six-year-old boy. He would be the first emperor over China for the Qing dynasty. He could not have known or had any responsibility for any of the past before him. Yet there he was, placed by fate and circumstance, to rule China. Now I mention this little idiosyncrasy because I think it's what makes history fun and interesting, to me anyways. It's one of the reasons that I do love history. I realize those two facts I pointed out. There's nothing substantive. There's really no significance to them other than just facts. But I find it remarkable that the Qing Empire, the one that would rule over China, began and ended with small boys. Our last episode, Huang Taiji, the emperor, had died unexpectedly. And he left no record or directions for who would succeed him. He had several sons, but only one was older than 16. Huang Taiji also had scheming brothers. And this would be a recipe for a succession fight, the outcome of which the fate of the dynasty would depend. At that time, decisions on who was going to be the next emperor were made by a deliberative council. And the deliberative council was comprised of the brothers, this would be the sons of Nuar Hachur, and other trusted ministers. One brother, however, stood out on that deliberative council. And his name is Duar Arguan. I've mentioned him before at least twice, maybe more, and the time has come in our story where I must talk about him a little more. You see him pronounced in Western text as Dorgon, D-O-R-G-O-N, but his Mandarin name was Duar Arguan. And he was of the Aishin Jielo clan. So his name would be Aishin Jielo 
Duaguan. And I need to talk about him. It's absolutely necessary that I talk about him. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about him. He is a giant player. His life spanned three generations, not only his own, but his father's and his sons and nephews. He was born in November of 1612, probably in Shenyang, China, which I've mentioned is in the northeast part of China. And he would have been Nuar Hacher's 14th son. Huang Taiji, the emperor that we just left, was Duo Arguin's older half-brother. They had different mothers. Duo Arguin's life thus far has been dominated by his military career. He fought wars against the Ming, the Han, the Mongols, and the Koreans. Prior to 1650, it has been estimated that he raided or sacked over 40 cities, taking enormous treasure and taking enormous prisoners of war and doing enormous, what we would consider war atrocities. He distinguished himself as one of the most capable military commanders the Manju had. You either loved him or hated him. He was a brutal warrior, arrogant, blunt, fearless, larger than life. When I read about Duarguin, I think he's the kind of person that when he walks in the room, everybody pays attention to him immediately. He may have felt a little bit slighted. There is evidence that his father, Nuar Hachur, had verbally expressed that Duarguin would be designated as Nuar Hacher's successor. Also, in the last episode, I'd mentioned in the context of Huang Taiji ascending to the throne that there were forced suicides. One of those forced suicides was Dua Arguin's mother. And she apparently was silenced, allegedly, because she was a strong voice and advocate for Dua Arguin. So Duargon was ripe for another fight. Duargon also happened to control two white banners, which, as we know, are quite powerful. To no one's surprise, Duargon was in the middle of this succession issue, and he was probably ready to exploit it in any way he could. The deliberative council was considering two candidates— one was, of course, Do Arguin. Two of Do Arguin's brothers, Ajiga and Duadua, wanted him. The other person that was being considered was Hauge. And Hauge was Huang Taiji's only son over 16. So he had that very much going for him. And as we've learned before, the emperor was free to choose any of his sons maybe preferring the older one if capable, but not necessarily mandated to do that, to choose the oldest son. The deliberative council, however, chose Doarguin. And it's not difficult to see why he was chosen. He had vast military experience. He also had administrative experience as well. 
He was more than qualified. And maybe most importantly, the Qing, the Manchus, were still in conquer mode. There was lots and lots of China to conquer yet if they were going to become the rulers of China and as well as putting together an administrative apparatus to run a government. So nothing was certain at this point. Duarguan stands out. Hauga, however, had the best qualification in the sense that he was Huang Taiji's oldest adult male heir. Hauga controlled two of the yellow banners that he inherited from his father. And the yellow banners were the most important ones to possess. Hauga also had extensive military career as well. I don't know if he had any administrative experience. But there's one problem with Hauga. Duarguan did not like him. And I don't know why. Duarguan apparently refused to become the emperor out of respect for his father and also because he believed the empire, an emperor rather, should go to Huang Chaiji's son. When Duarguan refused, allegedly Duarguan's brother Ajiga stepped up and wanted the position, but no one, no one would have any of that. A compromise had to be reached because Duarguan was not going to support the distinction or the designation of Hauga to be emperor. So Hauga's younger brother was chosen, Fulin. And Duarguan and Duarguan's cousin, Jiar Halang, would be co-regents. Perhaps this was Duarguan's aim all along. Jiar Halang was Nuar Hatcher's younger brother's son, so it was Nuar Hatcher's nephew. He also had extensive military experience, but had no interest in statecraft, had no interest in governing China, and for that he would defer to Duarguan. Allegedly, there were many that were not happy that Duarguan did not become emperor. Nonetheless, there was bad blood between Duarguan and Hauga, and it spilled over. Once Duarguan was installed as a co-regent, he was effectively the emperor, the de facto emperor, and he charged Hauga with conspiring to undermine the, the, the regency. And Hauga and his supporters were arrested. Hauga was stripped of his titles and his banners, sent to prison, where he committed suicide, and Hauga's supporters were executed. So Fulin comes into the picture, and his official name would be Schwinja, and I'm going to refer to his given name of Fulin, but Schwinja was his emperor name. And he officially ascended the throne in October of 1643. But remember, at this point, the Ming still ruled China. It wasn't until June of the next year that the Ming Empire was gone. Fulin was six years old at that time. 
He was born in March of 1638. And it wasn't until October of 1644 that Doa Arguin greeted Fulin at the gates of Peking. And of course, Fulin would be overshadowed by his regent and uncle, Doa Arguin. Now, all of this might sound perilous and not good, but remember, at this time, the Qing had not fully conquered China. The Qing also needed to build statecraft. They needed to garner trust. They needed to stabilize the government and the economy. And none of this was certain. They needed a strong, experienced leader. A six-year-old boy was probably not going to do that. They needed someone with vast military experience as well. The Qing, the Manjos, were at a crossroads. And for that, they would have to rely on a young group of men, the sons of Nuar Hatcher and some of the nephews, who were horsemen warriors. But the succession issue exposed some chinks, some crack in the armor very early on in the Qing Foundation. And this easily could have gone very bad. This easily could have been Dua Arguin taking over and eliminating all of the enemies or all of his detractors and become emperor by force. But he didn't. And I think he has to be credited for at least having some restraint. And I think a lot of this has to do that they were still on conquest, that there was a central purpose to the Manjus at this time. They were all working together. They all had a sense of purpose. So Duargon was probably the right man for the right time. He consolidated the government even more. But he also had a reputation as being corrupt. And he also increased his power as he continued his co-regency. He steadily increased his rank to ever higher exalting titles. He first was designated the first Prince Regent. Then that became Uncle Prince Regent. And by the way, the word uncle or the designation of uncle in Chinese is a high respect, a high honor. The fact he was a the de facto emperor There's no question about that. In 1648, he again renamed himself the Imperial Father Regent, and he demoted his co-regent to Assistant Regent. But Duarguin's reign as co-regent is best known for the southern campaigns in China. China, south of the Yangtze River, was full of Ming supporters and loyalists. And this had to be dealt with if the Manjus had any choice, any chance of making a dynasty in China. And Duarguin, his leadership would provide the way. His masterful campaigns through southern China in the late 1640s were epic. Duarguin also commanded not personally, but ordered that 
the peasant the peasant results in northwest china be dealt with as well so he was in south china he was in northwest china by the time duarguan was done the ming had only left had only the southwest part of china and taiwan left under their control but and it would be decades to finally root them out the devastation in southern china probably will never be known but I've seen estimates ranging from 10 million to 100 million lives affected, which is enormous. So Duargon was ruthless. And one of the things he's also known for is he had a habit of forcing the men who were not Manjus to shave the forehead and put the back of their hair into a ponytail or a queue, a braided queue. And this was deeply humiliating to the, to the men, particularly the Han Chinese men. But for the Manjus, this was a sign of respect. Finally, on a hunting trip in Hebei province in December of 1650, he died, Duarguan died, for some unknown, from some unknown illness. And he was only 38. But he seems much older. To me. He died without a known last will and testament, leaving only a daughter and an adopted nephew to survive him. His adopted nephew, of course, would have inherited his banners as well as whatever else he owned. So the death of Duarguan was certainly the, the end of an era for the Manchus. And I think you have to agree that he's too important to just gloss over. As I stated, his life spanned three generations and he had a major impact in each of them. Like or hate him, history has generally vilified him, however. My wife, who is native Chinese and grew up a product of the Chinese schools, told me the Duarguan when she learned about him was taught that he was not a very good man. So I mentioned that just in the sense of context. However, immediately after Duargo's death, he was praised. He was made the emperor, given the emperor title posthumously. The young emperor Fulin was said to have bowed three times in front of his funeral procession. Again, a sign of respect. But that soon changed. Fulin would eventually strip Duarguan of all of his titles. And his male heir would, would have to lose the inheritance. The inheritance was abrogated. The male heir lost any right to inherit anything from his father. Duarguan's followers and supporters were also executed. A plot was uncovered after his death where Duarguan tried to or did alter official records to put himself and his family in a better light. There's also evidence that there was embezzlement, lots of corruption, and an attempt to bury the wrongdoing. There's also an allegation that Fulin's mother may have been involved in some of these schemes 
and rumors that Duarguin secretly married her. But that last part has been hotly disputed. In 1651, the co-regent, G.R. Halong, brought an indictment posthumously against Duarguin, claiming that Duarguin was in possession of yellow robes, that he uncovered a plot that Duarguin was going to seize the throne, and that he also accused Duarguin of killing Hauga, his nephew, and taking his consorts for himself. For this, Fulin ordered, if this can be believed, that Duarguin's body be exhumed and publicly flogged. That's crazy. In the mid-1650s, two officials tried to rehabilitate Duarguin's name, but G.R. Halong refuted that effort and eventually got those two exiled. Fulin's relationship with Duarguin has to be complicated. We'll never know. But it was his uncle. And so there's a little bit of family respect. Also, I think there's respect for, Duar- for Duarguin's vast accomplishments. Most historians I have read view Duarguin as an effective, competent, if not brutal, military leader. He was a decent politician, but left some bad legacies. Those legacies were forced head shaving, hair cues, forced manju clothing. Duarguin also ordered seizures and confiscations of homes and farms to be put into service for bannermen and other important officials and soldiers. No question that Duarguin caused lots of bloodshed and lots of resentment against the Manju. On the other hand, many have said that where Nu Ha Chur and Huang Taiji prepared the way for the Manjus, Duarguin seized it. He was the architect of the Qing conquest, the mastermind. Without question, Duarguin had a strong personality a take-no-prisoners type, pulled no punches. Sadly, however, since his survivors were disinherited, there was no money for anyone to care for his tomb. And for years, his tomb fell into disrepair. Interestingly, nearly 100 years later, the emperor conducted, then the emperor conducted, a full-scale review of all of the Qing's founding fathers. And chief among these that was reviewed was Duarguin. And the emperor then ordered that Duarguin's name and title be restored. That his name be cleared of all charges. And that his tomb be repaired. All right. Next episode, we'll talk about the new emperor. If anyone has any comments, questions, suggestions, you can email me at historyaccounts at yahoo.com or you can provide a rating of this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.